0: Welcome to introducing me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Janice Lintz. Her daughter was diagnosed with hearing loss and that sparked uh, Janice's decision to take action to change hearing access. Um, so, we'll get to learn more about Janice and all the great things she's done. So, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself?
1: Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, yeah, so I, when my daughter was diagnosed with a hearing loss, I decided that at, right after the diagnosis, the doctor said there were special schools for her. And I decided it was easier to change the world than to change the standard of the way I intended to live my life. I didn't really understand why. She needed to go to, quote, special schools. And so I set about to change the world for people with hearing loss from adding hearing access to museums, theaters, airports, transportation, to disrupting the hearing aid market.
0: And so how did you, like, make that switch from whatever your day-to-day life was before to advocating for change?
1: It 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 sounds funny. It didn't happen like abruptly. It was I had decided to be a state hall mom. Um, I had I just started working on projects that impacted our family. So, you know, we would I love we live in New York City, the cultural capital, um, and it's hard not to go and enjoy museums, theater when you live in a city filled with it. So if we wanted to go somewhere, I started having to figure out like, okay, how do we add the access to it? And so I started working on the projects that impacted our family. But then I quickly realized that these projects took a really long time. And I was gonna have to um, start planning further ahead uh, uh, for my daughter's life than just like what was right our immediate needs and so then I started working on bigger projects and it kind of snowballed I'm not even quite sure when I entered this as my career it just happened by happenstance
0: and so when you started to like realize that you needed access for your daughter and you were going to different places what was the accessibility like
1: it was either non-existent or not working and the cons- the people at the front desk didn't seem to care. And that was unacceptable to me. I, I didn't understand. <laughs> I remember going to Lincoln Center and we had made arrangements to have an assistive listening device that allowed it- the type of device that the center had at the time. You would wear this um, receiver, like the size of a deck of cards around your neck with... A loop that would go around your neck that would receive the signal from the stage, and then the sound would electromagnetically jump to my daughter's hearing aids. And it's called a neck loop, and with an assistive listening system, either an FM uh, radio frequency or infrared point of light. And it didn't work. And I remember we were seeing Peter and the Wolf, and I had to get it four times to get. Proper receiver, and we always made sure to get you know really good seats so she could see people's faces, Uh, and you know I was disrupting everyone every time I got up to get this. But I, my daughter, who at the time was I don't know like four years old, didn't you know she doesn't want to just sit through a show and not be able to understand what's going on. She was frustrated, so she'd talk, And, and that's equally frustrating you know, disruptive to people. And like the person I remember this woman did just did not care that my daughter didn't couldn't hear. It was like, oh, I'm sorry, you can come back next week. And there was this perception, and I still see it today, where people say, Oh, you'll just come back next week as if you just want to do redo everything in your life twice, two, three, four times till they get it right. It's truly amazing to me. <laughs>
0: Right. Definitely. Because, you know, accessibility should, should be there. Um, so, you know, you just said that you're, you're still experiencing some of this. So what sort of things have changed or gotten better?
1: I've gotten better? And then we can, tell, we can talk about what what's hasn't improved. Um, <laughs> what's gotten better is I would say people are now at least aware they need to provide some form of access. And what's great is they call it access. It used to be called disability services or disabled services. And that was one of the projects I worked on from the beginning was changing the language. I remember fighting with Madison Square Garden of why it should not be called disabled services and it should be called access because the problems are not with the person, but the artificial barriers in place. And you need to remove those artificial barriers and that's called access. Um, so that's improved it It's very rare now. you see the word disabled services. you really usually see now with for museums accessibility, so that was a a huge hurdle to overcome that and people definitely you know they know they have to provide something and and have some idea providing captions on videos they seem to understand to add back so. It's definitely improving, um and I you know places that we visit, obviously the access changes. What's frustrating is still is that I shouldn't have to visit some place with my daughter for the access to change,
0: and was this something at all that you were realizing was an issue before you had to worry about it with your daughter?
1: No, because you know there are so many um issues in life. But I think until something affects your family personally or a friend, it's hard to manage and be aware of all the issues. Right? I am sh- quite confident there are so many issues that impact families now that I have no clue about. Not because I, you know, I'm mean or heartless, but I just think it's it's overwhelming to keep track of everything for everyone. So I think people tend to pay attention to what impacts them either personally, their family or their friends.
0: Right. And that completely makes sense. But you did mention that um, it seems at least like when you're experiencing it in the world that like the people you're asking for accessibility assistance, that they might be a little bit more understanding. Is that correct?
1: I think they have some idea now about access, because I think, thankfully, the world has changed. So the concept is, is at least on their um, wavelength, I think both, but they still don't fully understand that disabilities don't just mean physical disabilities, and you can't see everyone's disability. That mm-hmm. concept seems to escape a lot of people. They, they kind of think you need to be able to see the person's disability for them to have a disability and that invisible disabilities aren't real disabilities. And I will say that is actually something that it is perceived by not only people without disabilities, but people with disabilities. There are definitely people um, in the physical disability world, I believe, who don't really view none Visible disabilities is real disabilities as compare them. Sadly, um, there's a movie called Crip Camp. I don't know if, you, if you've seen it on Netflix. But they discuss the ranking of disabilities, and that most definitely does exist. And I thought it was great that um, Judy Human in the movie discussed something that's like a dirty tale within the world. Because people pretend it doesn't exist, and it definitely does exist.
0: Right. And it is I think it's so important to, you know, see things like that in media to say like, Hey, this is happening, especially like if you're not in the community and you don't realize what's going on. Um, so the fact that, you know, they were able to make that representation is, is really good.
1: Yes. Uh, it, it really was because it, it the ranking of the disabilities, um, hurts people and it hurts getting access in place because there's this perception that if you can't see the disability, you don't really need to provide the access.
0: Right. And it's so like, you know, like you've said, it's so unfortunate because when you think of hearing loss, like that is a disability that I think people can understand um, because it's the loss of one of your major senses, Um, but it looks different for everyone else. And depending on the person, may be very visible or may be completely invisible. So what sort of accessibility can your daughter use? Like what things help her in different situations?
1: Well, to reach the full spectrum of people with hearing loss, you need to have three things. Auditory, visual, and qualified interpretation. And so some people think that it's a menu where you can pick and choose. But if you pick one over the other, you leave one part of the spectrum out. And so you need to have, how do you take the sound and bring it to someone's hearing aid, ear, or cochlear implant? That is called um, either using one of three types of systems and an assistive listening system that's infrared using point of light or FM, Or an induction loop that doesn't require wearing a device, that magnetically, the sound will go right to your hearing aid or cochlear implant. And you see that now in airports, wherever you see an ear with a T, a lot of Delta Air um, terminals have it, and other airlines are following suit. Then you have the visual representation, turning the sound into words. You see that commonly captions on television or on video and then you have qualified interpretation which is sign language the of the 48 million people with some form of hearing loss less than 2 million people use sign language so sign language is critical to people who use it but the vast majority of people with hearing loss do not use sign language and so that's really hard because when you go to museums they'll say oh we have sign language and you're like My daughter doesn't know sign language. That's really great for the people who need it or use it. But it doesn't solve the problem for the people who don't, right? It's like learning sign language is another language with its own syntax. No different than learning French. And so when people say that, it's really exasperating. The other thing they'll say is, oh, we have captions. And then you'll say, well, but my daughter would like to hear the sound, not just read it, because." as you can hear from listening to this podcast, I'm full of passion. And you don't get that when you read something. And if you have residual hearing, you want to be able to hear it. And then they'll say, oh, well, captions is basically like good enough. And you're like, oh, well, if that's the case, then shut the sound for everyone. Oh, no, no, no. Sounds is important. So what they're saying is sound is important for everyone, but people who are hard of hearing, who can't hear the sound and need a system that allows them to hear this out.
0: Right. And that's you know, like you said, like everyone's need is so different. So do you think at some point your daughter will learn sign language?
1: I I no, because it's not something you if you don't need it, you it it's like deciding like will she decide to learn russian or chinese right it, it's an it's another language so i'm not sure she's you know look i don't know if she's planning to learn chinese not that she has anything against chinese right it she has to decide she wants to learn another language and then decide if she wants to learn another language what language does she want to learn
0: right that makes a lot of sense since she has um, the device um, already that helps her learn in that facet of having additional audio help?
1: She wear, my daughter wears a hearing aid, and <laughs> so from the hearing aid, she can hear just like other people. I mean, she, she hears. My daughter attends an Ivy League university now for graduate school, went to an undergraduate at Ivy League university. He just needs the devices, no different than if someone is dyslexic, they may need certain um, you know certain enhancements to help them, right. Different people have different learning styles, and I think the difference is now everybody has to learn or receive information in the way that they need best, not one way. I think we've come to realize that not everybody learns the same way.
0: Definitely. So what was it like uh with like when she very first went to school? Did you have battles there in accessibility?
1: Yes. Um, well, because we originally were dealing with New York City's Department of Education, um, where that, you know, some of the people on the Department of Ed had their own perceived notions of what a student with hearing loss could or couldn't do. And my goal as a parent was, why are you lowering the bar for my daughter? Your your perceptions are antiquated and incorrect. And I don't know why you have these perceptions because they're just incorrect. So for example, one of the things that a lot of schools the, the department that I recommended was somebody called the Teacher of the Deaf, and I still really never understood why this woman has this title. But she would essentially help my daughter to learn to read and write, which is basically why my daughter was in school altogether. Right? Like, like what are you doing? Like, you don't have an English degree. How are you teaching my daughter to write when you're not an English teacher? I it didn't even make sense. And actually the school where my daughter went to, which was a top private girls' school in New York City, said you need to terminate this woman. (laughs) Like, this is why you send your daughter to school. And if she needs extra help, which a lot of the children do, you hire a tutor. And I was like, Yeah, that was what I was thinking. Like, why do we need this person? And that's what we did. We found that this woman who shadowed my daughter was actually creating a stigma to my daughter and when my daughter needed a little extra help with writing we hired a tutor and then I decided if you you know if you want to play tennis right you hire a tennis pro right and anybody in the olympics who's playing tennis has a tennis pro right all the athletes in the olympics have pros helping that so I decided if my daughter was going to learn to write well We should hire a pro. And so I hired tutors from, like, the best schools in the United States, from the Ivies or Ivy equivalents and even one from Oxford. And so that she would become a strong writer. And she is. And so some of these things that the Board of Ed would do just made absolutely no sense to me.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned also that some things have not gotten better in terms of accessibility. So do you want to talk about those things?
1: Well, I think that it's sort of what I started speaking about, where there's this perception that um, you should have to call a museum ahead of time and tell them what you need. And the ADA kind of like doesn't really have clear parameters of what people should have. And so some museums think you call ahead and tell them what you need. And the perception is you call them, you tell them, and then they will have it ready when you arrive. You know, give or take, tell them two weeks in advance. But not one museum that I've ever contacted has been able to get the access in place within the two weeks. One museum, the Smithsonian, I've been working on since 2002. 20 years already. I don't know how much more notice they need. And then you have to get into a battle with them of whether or not they view what the access you ask as a reasonable accommodation. And what's crazy is you have, in the case of the Smithsonian, someone who uses a wheelchair deciding what access a person with hearing loss needs is a reasonable accommodation. That would be the equivalent of me who is white making a decision about Black Lives Matter, right? Nobody would ever tolerate me as a white person making a decision about Black Lives Matter. Why is someone who uses a wheelchair making a decision about another disability?
0: So then what would be better methods for accessibility access?
1: I think there needs to be the ADA was structured um, without really the input of people who are hard of hearing. And when you watch the movie Crip Camp, you see that most of the people involved are using wheelchairs. And so the, the regulations about hearing loss is, is very vague. It uses the term effective communication, and nobody knows what that means. And in fact, I'm the only person who is um, defining it. And through various legislations. there has to be just like the Civil Rights Act had the, voter, the Voter's Rights Act, which augmented it. And people felt, why do you need the Voter Rights Act? The Civil Rights Act is very clear. It wasn't. And you did need the Voter's Rights Act. The ADA needs a Hearing Access Act to really clarify what exactly that term effective communication means. And there needs to be like a revamp. Um, The problem is the ADA is a federally unfunded mandate with no teeth, And so unlike when you go, I don't know what state you're in, but like in some states or cities, people have the health department that goes around and checks restaurants to make sure they're in compliance with the health codes. And then the restaurants receive letter grades, A, B, C or fail that are posted in their windows. That doesn't happen with disability access. There is no one that goes around and checks any access to make sure it's correct. Everything is complaint driven. That's problematic because it shifts the entire burden of making sure places are in compliance to the person with the disability who may have trouble communicating, especially if the place doesn't have proper access of how to communicate, right? Like if let's say you can or can't use a phone and you want to send an email, but there's no email address, how to communicate. Um, and then you're battling with them whether or not they think you have that what you're asking for is reasonable accommodation. And if the person uses a wheelchair, they may not care the, about hearing access and they may dismiss it which many museum access coordinators do. And so you get into this really untenable dynamic that really is untenable for people with hearing loss to deal with. And so I think we need a Hearing Access Act to augment the voters' rights, like similar to the Voters' Rights Act.
0: I think you explained it really well and it, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Um... I don't, you know, I don't know the entire act with like, you know, front and center. Um, but you know, when you, when you say like that one phrase and it's like, well, that one phrase can mean so many different things to so many different people. It's like the same thing you see with reasonable accommodation. Well, reasonable accommodation for one disability is going to be completely different than a reasonable accommodation for another disability. And it all just kind of, there's so many factors to it. Um, that you that you need to include, you know, other other disabilities.
1: Exactly, and so I th- I think that really is something that needs to happen, and that's something I intend to work on, um, because right now it's not working. It, it it's not working at all. Um, the, you know, for and a, and a perfect example is you have a museum in Colorado, the Paralympian Museum, and. I mean, what's crazy is they told me they consulted Paralympians for the access people with hearing loss needed. And the person who told me this had no idea that if you have hearing loss, you're not a Paralympian. You participate in the regular Olympics. And so they asked people without hearing loss what access people with hearing loss needed. That's crazy. (laughs) Right? And then when you go back to the same, you know, the the understanding of, like, imagine me, a white woman making decisions, what people who are Black need, that would be wrong. And when you take whatever the issue is and you translate it to race, it becomes way more apparent. But somehow people don't think it's a problem when anything related to disabilities, because it's the one thing That is still okay to to disparage or dismiss or use improper language. People don't seem to care. People with disabilities have not had their moment yet. And it shouldn't take a moment.
0: Right. Like, you're right. It shouldn't, you know, have to be this big monumental thing. Um, I think the good thing is, you know, you have talked about how, you know, some things have gotten better and, you know, people are, you know, of course change doesn't happen in a day, unfortunately, (laughs) but, you know, if people are like willing and, and seeing, okay, this is something we need to do. And I think, you know, I, I kind of, when you were talking about the whole restaurant example, you know, I was thinking about, like, wouldn't it be nice if there was kind of a checklist for ADA guidelines of, okay, well, here's a disability, here's something that would help for that. So, you know, you've got a wheelchair, you have a ramp to get in, you have an elevator to get to the floors. Okay, you have hearing access, here are the different things that you could offer, um, depending on the different access that they need, you know, the three different ways that you described. Um but that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> no,
1: it, it and it does sort of. So I work with the National Park Service to create guidelines that were the first federal guidelines to define effective communication. And so the National Park Service guidelines do break out, you know, because the national parks are basically the equivalent of a museum. And so the guidelines are really clear about what access is needed. And then on my on my advocacy website, um, JaniceLentz.com. And if you go into tools to use and you look effective communication worksheet, there's a great worksheet where if you put at the top of this worksheet what the sound source is, and then there are three other boxes that show, okay, when you have that sound source, so let's say you have a video as an example, right? Anytime there's sound, whether human or audio, so let's say, for example, you have a video, then you need to apply that three prong approach. Okay, you have this video, how do you communicate the, the video in the, with the three different ways for people to reach the full spectrum of people with hearing loss? Or so, if you start with visual, you need captions. Does the video have captions? Yes, check. Does the the video have an induction loop so someone with a hearing loss can hear the sound in their hearing aid or cochlear implant? Yes, good, you're great. Then do, is there a sign language interpreter if someone needs that? Yes, great, then you're good to go. So if you use the worksheet and you take do a separate worksheet every time there's a sound, whether human or audio, you're creating that checklist.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of like you said, it is like that's, that's just the way to do it. And the fact that like, you know, you worked with the park service just shows, you know, one, one step in the, in the big picture.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the national parks is, is basically a museum. I mean, they have museums within the parks, and it's a perfect incubator and it, and it works. I mean, sadly, while the guidelines exist, the national parks doesn't always follow the guidelines. (laughs) That's the other part. Because the way the national parks work is parks um, either can go to Harper's Ferry to have their exhibits produced, or they can spend the dollars for their exhibits locally. And they're supposed to use the guidelines, but they don't always, and they don't always check the guidelines. or they don't test the equipment to make sure it's still working. So for example, we recently went to Ellis Island and not all the exhibits were working. Like some of the, some of the videos did not, the induction loop didn't work. And then um, they didn't have proper signage in places. In some places they had signs that didn't make sense.
0: So was it then a common occurrence still finding things that, Aren't you know even like up to code in the sense of accessibility, whether or not there is a true code?
1: The problem is, there is not a clear code, and there's not, um, first off, the United States does not have a secretary of human rights, which is insane, right? Most civilized countries have a secretary of human rights or some place where if there's a problem, you can properly complain. We have something called the U.S. Access Board, which handles um, all physical built-in access. So if you take a building and you turn it upside down and you shake it, anything that stays in the building is basically a fixture. That goes to the U.S. Access Board. If it falls out, that is programmatic access that goes to the Department of Justice. But then you have other layers. If it happens to be in an airport, it's either U.S. Department of Transportation, but if it's on the airplane, it's at the FAA. If it's in a national park, it's the National Park Service, right? So you have all these, you know, if it's on anything to do with like television, but not the internet, then it's the FCC. So you have all these government agencies and the expectation is that Every American citizen or tourist knows the way government works and who the right person and how to contact this person. That's not realistic. And the other thing I think we need is um, there's a a great agency called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB, where if you have a problem relating to a banking type institution, you can go online, cfpb.com, and file a complaint put in the information, you put the problem, who's involved, and the CFPB responds. And if it's not CFPB, let's say it's relating to a stock trade or, uh, and it goes to um, something called FINRA, right? They will route it to the right agency. People with disabilities need a similar type agency where things are routed to the correct agency if it is not an access board or DOJ and where any if it's state related it goes to the correct state. It's right now such a labyrinth that nobody knows where it is. It is so complicated. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years. There are times I still file in the incorrect place and they'll kick it back and they'll say wrong place. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And I'm like, If I'm not getting it, I can't imagine for somebody who this is not their first, you know, this is their first complaint, right? And do you want to make your whole life about complaints? Nobody wants that. So there really should be a centralized agency similar to the CFPB where you can file your complaints. And there should be a Secretary of Human Rights that's that. Oversees this entire issue. I don't, you know, where you have undersecretaries: one dealing with race issues, one dealing with LGBTQI issues, one dealing with disability issues, another one dealing with women's issues. You know, all the different various things that comprise of human rights, with all the various undersecretaries under it running their individual departments and communicating between the departments. Because, of course, you can have somebody who is black who's LGBT who has a disability right and is a woman you can you could have you could tick all the boxes and the, all the communities need to communicate and work together
0: right and the fact that you you know we're giving all of those examples of you go to this place you go to that place depending on x y z like like you said if it's your first time complaining like it's not going to be easy And as you said, you know, the ADA is kind of a complaint first kind of situation where it gives the burden on the person with the disability. So what is like the function of the ADA?
1: In my my opinion, it's like a safety valve, right? It gives you some feeling that you actually have some rights and that you have some place to hang your hat, but not really. It's a federally unfunded mandate with no teeth. So if you have a problem, good luck solving it, right? You have to really dig in deep. But like, perfect example, there it was a Supreme Court decision, um, Vector V something, I don't remember who the title but it basically mandated that any ship flagged um, with any country flagged but enters U.S. waters must be accessible. So that meant since most ships, right, like cruise ships come into the U.S. waters and they are foreign flagged because of tax purposes and um, immigration issues, you must be accessible. And the, and the the decision was based on the fact that could you imagine if otherwise we would, our Civil Rights Act would not apply to ships, which would be ludicrous. So great, that was a, on or about 2007. It is now 2022, so 17 years later, no regulation has been issued, none. And I was on the Federal Passenger Vessel Committee and we came up with proposed guidelines And then they were open to public comments, and comments were made, and those comments have languished. Like nothing's happened. So therefore, ferries, like a company like Hornblower Ferries, which operates a vast majority of the ferries in the United States, like in New York City, Niagara Falls, Ellis Island, there's no access for people with hearing loss on them. And they use the lack of this act of a regulation as an escape hatch, and they claim it's not possible to do. Except that's a falsehood, because in British Columbia, Columbia, Canada, they have induction loops on the on the ferries. If you go to Massachusetts, they have an induction loop on the ferry. If you go to Norway, they have induction loops on the ferries, and if you go to Australia, they have induction loops on the ferry. So why does the U.S. not have induction loops in the ferries, right? Doesn't make any sense. Now, combine that within the United States. Any ship that's flagged with the U.S. flag must be built in the U.S. under something called the Jones Act. So any ferries built here, they keep it as this, like, self-controlled group of saying it can't be done because it's so insulated, right? It's an insulated, self-contained group. But the Polish shipyard can do it. So why can't the Americans do it? And this is the problem when you have things like the EDA and it's not moving and you don't have the right people on the U.S. access board who understand The rules and the vast majority of the people on the U.S. Access Board use wheelchairs. There are now three new appointees that have hearing loss, two are deaf, but two, I think one, I'm not sure if she's deaf or her parents were deaf, but coming from a deaf background. And one is hard of hearing. So three out of 12 address hearing loss. And so that's hard to then have a majority decision to push to address hearing loss issues because you'll never have the majority vote.
0: And so what is this access board that you're talking about? Like what, how is it, how did these new appointees get appointed?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So there um, you have the director of the access board who's appointed by the president of the United States. And then you have 12 appointees who are also appointed by the president. And then you have people, another 12, who come from the various federal agencies that are affected by the ADA. And together, they help to write regulations and rules. But somehow, the Access Board has not been able to get their act together to solve this problem in almost 15 years. Right which is a really long time. I mean, think about that. So a child who was born when this ruling came out would now be 15 years old. That's their whole life, right? Their whole childhood, basically.
0: Yeah, and as someone who doesn't deal with hearing loss, like I'm getting so frustrated on your behalf and your daughter's <laughs> behalf.
1: <laughs> really frustrating. Sometimes it's so frustrating because I know what can be done. And the problem is, I don't always think the decision makers care. And you like, why don't you care? Like, it's 2022. Why don't you care? And how do we get you to care? Like, it's just so frustrating.
0: So, what is your next plan? What is like the next thing that you want to tackle with accessibility?
1: Well, I have a couple things. Um, one, I, I was very excited to see today that Senator Grassley and Senator Warren um, really joined forces together, so, real bipartisan, to push for the finalization of the, of the proposed hearing aid regulation. That's just phenomenal, um, and I love the fact that this proposed regulations, which is really based on my testimony from the before the FDA, is um, really being supported by a bipartisan constituency. That's just phenomenal. I would then love to see an agency similar to the CFPB for disability complaints. I would love to see the Smithsonian. Um add the access, and I'm working on that. It's part of a paragraph in the appropriations bill, and I'm also working on trying to get the passenger vessels to add the access that is sorely needed.
0: So how is it that you do all of this and work on these bills? like what sort of conversations and people are you talking to, and what help do you have so it's not like a one one woman crusade?
1: Well, I work with a ton of people. Um, it looks like uh, sometimes I think people think it's a one woman crusade, but there are a lot of people in the background who, because of their positions, can't always be in the front ground, but they make introductions. They um, help me. They provide incredible insight. You know, They send me the information I need. Um I will say when I submitted this letter about the passenger vessels to the president, it was because I was able to get the CAD drawings from Canada, thanks to Prime Minister Trudeau. And then the people from the British Columbia ferries connected me to the Polish shipyard, which connected me to the Norwegian Department of Transportation. I am willing to reach out to anyone and everyone. And because I have had so many successes, I get a lot of people helping me. Um, But it's not a one-woman crusade. It's just I don't have a formal advocacy organization because I don't want to spend time raising money to fundraise and to get things. I want to get things done. And it's this looser network is unorthodox, but it works. And I will ask anyone and everyone for help like literally anyone and everyone. I will reach out to presidents, prime ministers, queens. It doesn't matter who it is. I will send them an email. I can reach everyone.
0: And it sounds, you know, like your passion is just shining through. Um, And as you've talked about different things, doing a lot of great work, what is something that you are most proud of accomplishing?
1: Well, thank you. Um, The the new proposed hearing aid regulations are, like, I think, the most exciting thing. First off, they are going to disrupt the entire uh, hearing aid industry worldwide, and the the cascading effect will impact not just the United States, where so many people cannot afford hearing aids, but think about developing countries where hearing aids are just not even you know $8000 hearing aids are just not even in the reach you know when somebody is making a few hundred dollars a year right they're not going to be able to afford hearing aids it's just ridiculous so that to me is unbelievable plus getting hearing aid, the hearing aids tested is amazing um hopefully the, they're going to be using the international anti standards which i had proposed i am excited that the next step will be to add uh, generic terms for features, which was part of my FDA testimony. People said it couldn't be done. And I just didn't understand why it couldn't be done. And I didn't understand nothing made sense to me. And we're already seeing the impact of all these companies coming in and wanting to enter the hearing aid market. And that is so exciting to me. Hearing aid should not be the new status symbol for the rich. And I wanted everyone who needs a hearing aid to be able to get a hearing aid. It's just that simple. And so for me, this is so super exciting. It's really going to be like the legacy of my career.
0: Definitely. Now, before I wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners?
1: Um. Yeah. You know, one of the things is I'm just a regular person, right? I have no background in this. Um, Yes, I have a law degree, but I barely practice. I was able to affect change because this for something that was meaningful to me. And what's really exciting is I'm gonna be doing a course for Madecraft that will be out in a few months, teaching people the tools that they can use to affect change for the issues that matter to them most. Because we all have issues or problems that we want to change, but we feel we can't do. And I'm just proof that one person can affect change and it's not as hard as people think it is.
0: Yeah. And I think that's so important for people to hear.
1: Yes, because I want people, I, I just want people to rise up to the challenge of affecting change.
0: Yes, things can only go up.
1: <laughs> uh, only, especially right now. I feel like we have just really need people to to have hope. Yes.
0: Yes. Now, at the end of every episode, I do ask a random question. So nothing to do with anything we that we've been talking about. So my question is, what fictional character would you like to be friends with?
1: Um wow, that's like a really hard one. I don't usually get stumped, but um, I'm not really a fiction person. Um, I'm more, that's really funny because I'm not really a fiction person because I work on passion projects, you know, like things, there are people I would love in real life, you know, who who are nonfiction um, to, be, to meet with. I mean, I would personally love to have a meal with Martin Luther King. And I asked how, um, how he kept the course of fighting the good fight. I have some ideas since a congressman, congressman Lewis, I asked the question too. And he told me change doesn't happen without a struggle and make people uncomfortable.
0: all right that brings this episode to a close i'll be leaving a link to the netflix movie that janice mentioned crip camp which was produced by the obamas so that'll be in the description along with both janice's website so she mentioned janice that is her advocacy site and her consulting site hearingaccess.com will also be in the description and of course if you'd like to connect with the podcast our website's there as well brings you all to all of our social media Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, along with a link to donate to the podcast if you are interested, and my email if you'd like to get in touch with me. And also on the website, of course, is a link to all of the text for every single episode as the closed captions get put on YouTube. And they're just started being adding on the actual website of my podcast. That was something new that really just recently in the past couple of weeks, uh, my, the system that I use pushed out. So I was really excited about that. So anyway, I've had a great time talking with Janice. So thank you so much for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story until next time. Bye.
1: Bye. Thank you.